0: off to law school. And, and everything had been pretty easy for me in education up to that point. And um, I got to that end of that first semester. And in law school, you take a couple of exams that last hours. And that's your entire grade. And you know, I, I thought, I can do this. This has always been easy for me. And I took those exams. And the very first one, I got a D. I think it was a D. It might have been an F. Um, it was right on the line. And uh, I fell apart. And my first thought was, well, I'm not smart.
1: What Jessica Leahy ultimately learned from that failure has helped make her an influential new voice in the world of parenting.
0: Parents have such an incredible opportunity to model dealing with disappointments, failures, all that kind of stuff. You know, if we don't sit down at the table with our kids at dinner and talk to them about these things that happened to us at work that didn't go well, you know, when are our kids going to be able to learn how we deal with failure?
1: This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder, and if you are seeking actionable intelligence to become a better parent...
0: As my kids have gotten older, one of the things we've done is we've stopped talking about grades in our house. We just don't do it.
1: Jessica Leahy is a great source.
0: It requires you to have a conversation with the teacher where you say, I won't be hovering, and therefore, if things are not going well, I need you to specifically get in touch with me and tell me.
1: Introducing law school graduate, middle school teacher, and author of The Gift of Failure, Jessica Leahy. Jessica Leahy, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And Jessica, you are the author of a book that I just finished this morning, The Gift of Failure, and, and the subtitles are often crucial. Your subtitle is How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. This is what I need your help with. Last spring, when it was a graduation time, and you hear these great commencement addresses on here, you know, here's how to live a meaningful, purposeful life. And I thought... I know what I need right now. I need a commencement address for somebody like me, a commencement address for the parents of adolescents. So, my question to you is how would you begin, Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure, how would you begin your commencement address for the parents of adolescents?
0: Oh, you got it's such a hard question. For parenting, I really think, you know, the thesis would be that it's got to start to be their journey, not yours, and that we got to start thinking about the long-term effects of our parenting as opposed to those day-to-day moments when we'd really love to check that box off that says, you know, oh, I was a good parent today. You know, it's really it's tempting to make our kids feel comfortable and happy and safe in the moment. Um, but it's, it's a little harder to step back and say, you know, what am I, What do I need to do for the long term? And I think that long term thinking, that long haul parenting idea sort of is the the gist of what I would write about.
1: So you are, just to give us a little background, you're a teacher and tell us how, how and why you got into teaching and describe that moment for us that you do describe in the book when you felt, you know what, the parenting thing, I am not, doing it as well as I want to. I'm not doing I'm not employing the knowledge I have from seeing all these other parents doing certain key things wrong.
0: Yeah, I I actually went to law school to do juvenile law. Believe it or not and and I um I realized halfway through law school that uh, I really wanted to be a teacher. I was offered a teaching job. I came home that first day my husband took one look at my face and said, "Oh my gosh, are you even going back to law school?" It was pretty clear from that first day that I just I loved it. And I loved middle school-aged kids. I loved seeing them grow. And and I I loved that transformation that happens in the classroom when they really go from disorganized and scrambled and not able to even keep their pants up to, you know, someone who can go out there and, and actually get what they need from the world and give back to the world. Yet. I found at the same time I was increasingly frustrated with their parents for not allowing their kids to have the freedom to do that. And so at the time, you know, I started to think, how do I start to react to these parents? How do I convey to them just how much they're hindering their their children's education? And then I had a few moments where I realized that my students were just so afraid of messing up. And then my own children were... um, were also not doing well in that department. They were afraid. They were afraid to look stupid. They were afraid to fail. They were afraid to make mistakes, lest I think any less of them, or lest the world think any less of them. And and you know, if anyone's read any Carol Dweck um, uh, mindset, they understand that I had I had given my kids a fixed mindset. I'd let them believe that they are the sum total of what they achieve in a given moment, and that's how smart they are. And You know, man, I was really upset with myself when I figured that out. And
1: I have to say, when you say Carol Dweck, so Carol Dweck was a guest on Wavemaker Conversations.
2: I was coming out of a very fixed mindset background uh, where intelligence was believed to be fixed, and it was believed to be the most important thing on earth. My teacher in sixth grade seated us around the room in IQ order. Everything was determined on the basis of IQ.
1: Okay, so tell us, where, where were you sitting?
2: For better or worse, sitting in the first seat in the first row. And I say for better or worse because although it seems like a good thing, it really set me up. For worrying about always being smart. It made that a central part of my identity. And therefore, even though I loved learning, I always made sure I could succeed before I jumped into something.
1: The fixed mindset was resounding constantly in her head because she was front and center, and it made her scared to take risks that she might fail at or challenges that she might fail at and therefore indicate she wasn't as smart as everybody thought she was. So when you realized you were doing this for your kids, I have to imagine it didn't just all change overnight. But what was your first step?
0: I also had a realization similar to hers um, that and she is she's just amazing. I, I recommend all parents and teachers should read her book because she's just so incredible. But my realization you know i went off to law school and and everything had been pretty easy for me in education up to that point and um, I got to that end of that first semester, and in law school, you take a couple of exams that last hours, and that's your entire grade. And, you know, I, I thought, I can do this. This has always been easy for me. And I took those exams, and the very first one, I got a D. I think it was a D. It might have been an F. Um, it was right on the line. And uh, I fell apart, and my first thought was, well, I'm not smart. I have to quit law school. Not, you know, how can I get better at this? How could I practice? How could I do better? Um, it was, uh, I just, I can't do it. I have to quit. And, you know, I start, that came together with the realization that my my nine-year-old at the time couldn't tie his shoes because he didn't want to look stupid and he got frustrated. And all of that swirling yuck of of fixed mindset all kind of came together in this moment when this one student wrote about her fear of failure in my class. And I realized, you know, I've not only done this to myself, uh, I've allowed it to happen to my children and it's happening to my students. And there has to be some way forward. And I went to the parenting section at my local bookstore and read everything. I'm a researcher. I love that. And all I found was just more despair. All I found was, yeah, I'm doing it wrong, but I, I wasn't finding a way forward. And so that was the book I set out to write was, how do I back off around homework? How do I back off around sports? How do I back off around social life? And what's the research and the science behind that? And, and how can I not get to that point where, you know, my kids are leaving the house and, and are incapable of anything and, and are incompetent and don't know how to do anything for themselves?
1: You were in law school when you were married and a parent.
0: I was pregnant with my first child when I was in law school. But this realization came later when I was teaching middle school, and my older child was entering middle school. So I was teaching kids the same age as my older child and realizing that, you know this this memory I have of myself in law school and the what was happening with my kid and my uh, students all sort of came together in this flash of insight. When this student of mine wrote the little paragraph that's in the introduction of my book about the fact that her fear of failure robbed her of an enjoyment of learning, which, you know, it was really black and white there in front of me.
1: This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Schulder. My guest is Jessica Leahy, teacher and author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And by the way, when Jessica Leahy lets go, she lets go.
0: You know, I live in a town where, and I write about this in the book, where we have ponds and mountains and streams and woods and things like that, and and my kids do have the freedom to go out into the woods and get lost, and have there been times that I imagined there's the possibility they got eaten by bears, and I went out into the woods and yelled for them? Yeah, there have been a few moments like that.
1: I'm just writing out a, a, a tweet that I'll do later. Jessica Leahy, willing to risk children getting eaten by bears. <laughs>
2: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
1: You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Jessica Leahy, law school graduate, teacher, and author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. I read your book on my iPad, so I, I have, unfortunately, I have t- too much highlighted in yellow to, <laughs> to even deal with in a, in a one-hour interview. But but I do want you to define a term for me because I think sometimes a new word really helps people sort of get a fresh perspective. So let's start with this word, enmeshment. Tell me what that is.
0: You know, I think one of the disservices we've done to our kids is to tie up our sense of our ability to judge our own parenting in their accomplishments. And that's not completely our fault. I mean, we're having children older, we're having children after more education, and we bring the tools that we learn from that, like, you know, making spreadsheets and re- and, and being able to micromanage every aspect of our job performance and, and getting performance reviews to parenting. And the problem is, is we don't get job performance (laughs) reviews for our parenting. There isn't any great way to know how we're doing. And so we end up looking to our kids for that. And that's bringing our children's ability to sort of grow in a natural trajectory and make mistakes and have days where they really screw up, that means that we're suddenly appropriating that failure as our own. And and that's not fair to do to them. Plus, it's giving ourselves a little more credit than we deserve because anyone who has more than one child knows that, you know, sometimes those kids kind of come out the way they are and, you know, we can have some ability to control their performance and their achievements, but we certainly can't take credit for it. That's enmeshment.
1: So now here is where I guess the question of how often and how big can we allow our kids to fail comes in because too much failure is clearly not good for a child. And yet, how do you assess where that tipping point is of good, healthy failure versus too much failure?
0: There was a book that came out last year. As far as I'm concerned, it's one of the best books on education that's come out for a while, and it's called Make It Stick. And it's about the science of learning. And there's this one concept that I love that they talk about in that book called Desirable Difficulties. And the theory being that we learn things better when it's a little more challenging to get it into our brains. And there's a continuum there as well. I mean, obviously, you're not going to put a third grader into Algebra 2 and say, well, this will be great. He'll learn a lot because he doesn't understand the concepts and he'll have to figure it out. But when we're given just a little bit of difficulty, enough difficulty so that we have to push ourselves, we have to think in a way we haven't thought before and work out concepts in a new way, we're going to learn that information better and more durably for a longer period of time than information that's sort of spoon-fed to us. And so that's sort of the analogy that I make with failure, that the harder we have to work, the more likely we are to going to improve our brains. When we talk about What's an appropriate amount of failure? That's going to depend on the family. That's going to depend on the parents. Um, Some parents are just not going to be able to allow their kid to fail one test, whereas um, as this one woman in the book, um, she... Pretty much allowed her son to take responsibility for failing out of a school that he was in um, and showed him the alternatives, showed him the school he'd have to go to if he failed out of the school that he was in. And he decided um, she was very brave about that, and he was too, and he really took ownership of his education, and uh, and it was a life-changing moment for him. So the story in our family was that I pushed my son to begin piano lessons because our neighbor was giving away their piano. So we rolled it down to our house, and my son started taking piano lessons. And there was a brief honeymoon period where he liked practicing, and then he hated it. And uh, we fought about it three times a week, every single week. And it was really getting in the way of our relationship. It was getting in the way of other things that he could have been doing that he liked a lot more. So we rolled that piano out the door and down the hill to the next door neighbor's house. And then a couple years later, he picked up my husband's guitar. Um, we're not big musicians in our family, but my husband happened. My husband happened to have a guitar. And he picked it up, and that was that. It was a love affair from the beginning, and I kept my hands as far away from that whole operation as possible. I offered to let him take uh, lessons, which he took me up on, and then he quit lessons after about a couple months and decided he wanted to learn on his own using um, YouTube. There are some great instructors on YouTube, and he's obsessed, and he has continued to be obsessed for years. And then once he got the hang of that, he asked if maybe we could get a keyboard because he thought it was maybe time to do that. And he became obsessed with that. So I think all kids are different, number one. I think it depends on the priority in your home. If music is a huge priority, then if it had been a huge priority in my home, I would have persisted with the with the piano. And I don't know what would have happened. But I didn't. That wasn't my priority. I figured there were other things he could have been doing with his time, and he instead he played soccer and he tried a bunch of other things and circled back around to music. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for letting kids try things and give up if they don't like it. This idea that we need to keep forcing them because they can't give up on something because then they're a quitter. I think that's just not correct the way to think about things
1: so now let's go over to an area that my wife and I have have struggled with, and we know the importance of it, and actually, Julie Lithcott Hames and, and I we spoke about this quite at length because she's very passionate about it. The role of chores and the importance mm-hmm. of chores, and I, I think in your book you even uh, refer to somebody who says we shouldn't really call them chores. We should sort of rebrand right. it. And tell me about the importance of chores and how that stacks up when put side by side with the importance of grades, of uh, of excelling in particular subjects, of sports. How important are chores? Based on the research you've done,
0: well, and first of all, if you're right. I don't call them chores. I call them household duties or you know household participation. It's not a chore implies something that you do and you get paid for. And you know, I was lucky enough to be doing my research when Ron Lieber's book, The Opposite of Spoiled, was coming out, where he talked a lot about you know how to use money as a way to um, help kids build character and a way to talk about money. You know, we've taken a lot of purpose out of our children's lives. Uh, At this point, people say, you know, my job is to go to work and earn money and my kid's job is to go to school. And, you know, I think that's a terrible thing to have done to kids because kids used to play a big role in keeping the family afloat, not just financially, but from a, a work perspective. And it's a part of being part of a family. Um, you know, the big chore, and I just use the word myself, it is a chore for me, unfortunately. Our We have apple trees in our in our yard, and they've been dropping a lot of apples on the yard. And so every time I mow the lawn, they turn into applesauce. And so one of the jobs that the kids have to do is clean up all those apples in the, in the yard. And that's not something they get paid to do. That's something that they do because I'll make applesauce, because they don't want to step on hornets in the yard, because it's disgusting to walk out barefoot in the yard on the apples. And if they're not going to do it no one's going to do it and it's just their work as part of our family it's what we do for each other if the dishwasher needs to be unloaded you notice and you unload it because that's part of what we do for each other as a family
1: i just have to say you're you're talking to us from vermont public radio very close to to, (laughs) very close to your home in new hampshire you know that 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 image of the apples falling off the tree if that's not an advertisement (laughs) for new hampshire i don't know what is
0: Well, the other big job that my older son has is he's in charge of stacking wood. So there you go. There are the two big jobs that the kids are not fond of, the wood and the apples. You know, I know how to do a lot of things around the house because my father taught me when I was young. And I'm so proud of the things that I can do. And I have very vivid memories of my father teaching me how to do things around the house. And I remember I couldn't get my driver's license until I could do a couple of things with a car and, and just even little things like knowing how to change a tire yourself I don't know many kids my son's age who could change the tire on their car if they needed to. And it's something that they're probably going to have to do at some point, I suppose, unless they get bailed out completely. There are just a lot of things that I'm very proud of that I can do as an adult that I wouldn't have known how to do if it hadn't have been asked of me by my parents.
1: So so I have to ask you, uh, because you said you had sort of had a fixed mindset, and yet you were raised in this way where your father went side by side with you and taught you how to do this stuff and then presumably watched you do it yourself what did your father do just out of curiosity for a living
0: oh my dad he was a designer an industrial designer
1: an industrial designer so he
0: he designed medical instrumentation like blood gas analyzers that kind
1: of thing. oh my gosh so i mean you talk about a growth mindset he clearly had to have one there's a problem there i can find a solution yeah and how about your mother
0: my mom uh she was a real estate agent
1: And again, that takes, at the very least, a certain sense of optimism, (laughs) because, again, you talk about parents setting examples. You talk about a profession uh, that has to cope with constant failure to get that one success. Were you aware of how much failure there was? I I have to assume that, you know, your mother had to show X number of houses (laughs) to get any business, right?
0: Yeah. And I think partly they were also pretty honest with me, Um, you know. One of the things I talk about in the book is that parents have such an incredible opportunity to model dealing with disappointments, failures, all that kind of stuff. You know, if we don't sit down at the table with our kids at dinner and talk to them about these things that happened to us at work that didn't go well... You know, when are our kids going to be able to learn how we deal with failure? And I think we tend to be pretty reluctant in being honest with our kids. We kind of want to shield them from that. But that's a lost opportunity. Again, I just think that, you know, if we go home and we talk about the things that went wrong in our day and about what we're going to do to try to maybe change that and do it differently next time. And my parents did a lot of that. I think the fixed mindset part came into play for me just in the fact that I was, I thought of myself as smart and I was labeled as such and that became my identity. And so it never occurred to me that I'd just have to work really hard sometimes when things got hard, like chemistry, I mean, or algebra. I just kind of threw my hands up in the air and said, Well, that's I can't do that. I'm not a math person. And then when I was teaching middle school, actually in my in my middle forties, I went back and took algebra one again because I was so frustrated by this idea that I just wasn't a math person. And you know what? I found out it has nothing to do with being a math person or not being a math person it has to do with sticking with it and understanding the concepts so you know thank goodness i had that opportunity not a lot of adults do
1: you know it's interesting my my son's sport is tennis and he loves it and he had this coach over the summer who is only like 21 years old just just graduated from college guy from india and the first person I thought, well, he's just 21. He's not going to be one of the best coaches, right? Because it takes a certain level of experience and maturity teaching to be a really good teacher. Mm-hmm. But he, he sat down with my son. I later learned and said, what is it that you want to get out of tennis? Because, <laughs> because if you tell me what you want to get out of it, I will adjust my coaching to fit your goals. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've taken that cue in almost every aspect now of my kids' lives. And, you know, what a great thing to just ask them and then to pause and listen.
0: There was this great moment in uh, Vicki Hofla's book, Duct Tape Parenting, where she was fighting with her daughter constantly over homework. Uh, just Her daughter just didn't want to do it. And finally, out of just sheer frustration, she turned to her daughter and she said, what do you want to do? What would a perfect homework day look like for you? How do you want to do this? And her daughter just looked at her like, oh, my gosh, thank God you asked. I was just waiting for that. And her daughter said, I want to do it in the morning before school. And uh, Vicky was skeptical, but she let her do it. Her daughter set the alarm, got up at like 5 o'clock in the morning, and has always done her homework that way. She continued to do it that way through college. It was just that no one had ever asked her before how she wanted to do it. It seems so simple, but if we say to our kids, what would a perfect homework day look like for you? Or what would a perfect soccer game look like for you? Or what would a perfect music practice session look like for you? Just asking that gives them so much a sense of autonomy over whatever it is they're doing. That's a huge step.
1: That is a great way to frame it. Have you taken that into your own family life? And, And is there a particular question that you've modeled after that?
0: You know, I think early on, uh, you know, just little things like with toddlers, when you say, you know, would you like to wear the blue hat or the red hat? You know, you don't say what color hat would you like to wear because there's a rainbow of options out there. You give them limited choices. But as my kids have gotten older, one of the things we've done is um, we've stopped talking about grades in our house. We just don't do it. Um, And I don't use the portal where I could check in on my kids at school. Uh, That's something that we just decided not to do as a family, even though it's certainly available and there are parents that check five times a day. And instead, we talk about goals. I say, you know, we talk about setting goals for ourselves. And we try to set one goal that's a little bit scary. So we used to do it really formally. I talk about it in the book. Now we do it more informally. We just talk about it instead of writing them down and sticking them on the refrigerator. But we try to come up with short-term achievable goals for ourselves and then talk about how we're going to get there or talk about how it went. And if it didn't go well, well, we'll try something else next time, see how it goes next time. In my allowing them room to... Have their own goals in academia, in in their social lives that that aren't necessarily my goals, and that's good. We want kids to have goals of their own, and and giving that power over to them really made a big difference in in my son's school.
1: By the way, did you graduate from law school? I did. You so so you pushed through and you graduated, I did. <laughs> but, but <laughs> I did. you shifted, but you shifted careers. So so tell me about that, and also, you know, I I would think that you you know when your kids set their own goals. Sometimes, as you say, they can make mistakes. We can all make mistakes. Were any of those goals, in your opinion, fundamentally in conflict with coming out of high school a well-educated, curious kid?
0: The interesting thing about the goals is often they just seem silly to me, but that's not my place to say. You know, they're my kids' goals. So some of them seemed kind of a waste of space. And, I, I, you know, I'm not going to reveal what all of my kids' goals were, but some of them were just things like, you know, try to keep my room clean for seven days in a row, that kind of thing, Um, or make new friends. I mean, that sounds like such a simple thing, but for a kid who's had the same core group of friends for... His entire elementary school, when he moved into high school, it was a big deal for him to reach out beyond that group and make new friends. So, no, I, you know, I think just the act of creating your own goals is really important because one of the things that we really work on in middle school is this thing called executive function, which is a constellation of skills including time management, project planning, you know, being able to initiate and and move forward towards goals. One of the big things that kids need to be able to do is move towards self-directed goals, come up with the steps they need in order to move towards something that they came up with themselves as a goal. Too often what we do is we give the kids a goal they are supposed to work toward, and then we tell them how to get there. And that's not teaching them much of anything except for maybe how to follow directions. What we need to do is step back and say, okay, what are your goals and how are you going to get there, and let them come up with the path. That's a huge part of developing those, those executive function goals, the goals that we all need by the time we become adults so that we can move out into the world and say, okay, here's what I want and here's what I need to do to get there.
1: I've heard that term now. It is really one of the most prevalent phrases out there, executive functioning, and you hear it often paired with the modifier deficit. And you know, from reading your book and others, it, it seems like, well, uh, there is a natural deficit there as the brains are developing there, but but coming back to the positive side, so I'm looking at this is a uh, this is on the iPad now, page 91 of 380. And I can relate to this as a father It says the best part about being an autonomy, supportive parent. And this is, again, helping kids, you know, letting kids set their own goals and being self-directed. The best part of it, you, you write, is that all the negative stuff we do to get our children to do the things we want them to do, nagging, nitpicking, hovering, directing it all stops. Those parenting techniques are destructive to our relationships with our kids anyway. So parenting in their absence is a more peaceful and enjoyable affair all around. And so that's not just from your experience in your own family, where did you come up with that insight? Well,
0: if you think about that connection element of Edward D.C.'s Three Steps to Intrinsic Motivation, and one of them is this connection. Another person that talks about this a lot is Wendy Grolnick, and she's a fantastic inspiration for me. She's a researcher at Clark University, and she studies autonomy, supportive parenting, and she's written a couple of books that are just wonderful. One of the things that she did was look at the impact that autonomy supportive parenting, as opposed to controlling or directive parenting, can have on the way kids cope with frustration and failures. And Her studies look in a couple of different ways at what happens to kids who have directive or controlling parents. Um, When we take those directive or controlling parents out of the situation, those kids are less likely to be able to complete tasks on their own because they get frustrated and they don't know how to redirect on their own. They don't have that sort of internal locus of control, that ability to push through frustration and figure out a way forward. Whereas the kids of autonomy-supportive parents, parents who... Are there, but in the background, and step in when the kid gets really frustrated, but not the minute the kid makes a, you know, an exasperated sigh, and those kids are much more likely to push through through their frustration and complete a task um, when they're on their own and their parents are not present. What I'm most proud of in my life are the moments when things got really scary, things got really intense, and yet I was able to hold it together and push through and get past frustrations uh, on my own, and they were these huge growth moments for me.
1: Let me ask you just a couple more questions before we go. Sure, of course. In a moment, technology. How to minimize the negative impact of screen time on your children. And is there something we can learn about parenting in New Hampshire that can benefit the rest of the country? Actionable intelligence from Jessica Leahy. I'm Michael Schulder. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.
2: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
1: You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure, how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. So there was a time, I guess it was about 25 years ago, I was Peter Jennings' writer. And so Peter Jennings, his approach to journalism as I remember it when I used to work for him, was if he were visiting or reporting on a, a story from somewhere, anywhere in America or outside America, he would treat it as if he were visiting a foreign country in the sense that I'm not going to assume I know anything about this place that I'm visiting now, except what I might have experienced the last time I visited it. So now I ask you, you're, you're, are you from New Hampshire or you just live there now?
0: From Massachusetts, we moved here uh, about ten years ago.
1: So, looking at New Hampshire, is there something about New Hampshire that makes rearing children just a little different from other places in the country? What's What's unique about New
0: Hampshire? <laughs> I'm going to start with the license plate. It says <laughs> It says right on our license plate, "Live free or die." And there's a lot of uh, sentiment that we should be able to do things the way we want to do them, and and you should just keep your nose out of it. But, you know, I live in a town where, and I write about this in the book, where we have ponds and mountains and streams and woods and things like that, And, and my kids do have the freedom to go out into the woods and get lost. And have there been times that I imagined there's the possibility they got eaten by bears and I went out into the woods and yelled for them? Yeah, there have been a few moments like that. But on the other hand, you know, there are these fantastic opportunities for the kids to learn how to do things that um, and some things that have been kind of lost to time like chopping wood and things like that so there is a bit of idle and I did seek that out on purpose I grew up in a town a lot like the one I live in now There are a lot of people here still farming. And my older son at one point learned how to milk dairy cows. And that was part of childhood was really important to me. Uh, Learning, being in an environment where the idea that you do it yourself before hiring, trying to hire someone else to do it. um, There's that Yankee mentality that it's probably best if you do it yourself rather than you uh, hire someone. I, I like that because that implies that you can learn how to do those things yourself before you ask someone else. So that's that's something I wanted for my kids.
1: I'm just writing out a, a tweet that I'll do later. Jessica Leahy, willing to risk children getting eaten by bears. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to. So, so um, here's the, I guess here's the final little piece of the equation then. Technology and screens. And so so here we are, in a, and I, I do personally find this the toughest challenge because here we are in a situation where in order to do your homework, the work that's required of you, and in order to actually pursue your curiosity, you've got to have a computer. You've got to be hooked into the internet. And that computer is not just a computer. It is a TV. How have you handled that? I mean, right, right off the bat, the fact that your kids can get lost in the woods and have an appetite to do that is fantastic. You know, for people living in cities where they don't have that option and they do have these screens, and they're working on their screens, but the windows are flipping back and forth. Clearly, that can't be good for, I I know you've talked about working memory, that can't be good for working memory, and what a hard thing to resist. So give us your take on technology.
0: Well, I also got lucky in one other way in that uh, there's no cell service at my house. So People have cell phones here. It's just they're not very easy to use, and it's spotty service, so we've come not to rely on them. And so if my kids were to go out in the woods and take a walk, there's no reason to take their cell phone with them, if they even if they had one. And my older son does, but it's, it's not something that he's tethered to because he can't use it often. You know, I think one of the things that I've taught my kids to do, um, mainly because it's so important to us as a family, is that we all have... A quiet time in the house where, um, you know, often the Wi-Fi will go off or a period of time when, you know, you don't sit at the dinner table with phones. I saw something at one point, and I can't remember if it was a – I don't think it was a parody. It's this thing that looks like a, um, a salt shaker, and if you twist it, it turns off the Wi-Fi in the house. And I put up on Facebook, I said, how about we just say no devices at the dinner table so that we can actually have a conversation with each other? As a writer, you know, that's how I promote my work is on the Internet. I use Twitter. I use Facebook. I use all kinds of things in order to promote my work. And I guess the answer is the harder it gets for us the more we have to realize that our kids have even less self-control than we do just because of the way their brains are built and the fact that they're still maturing. And that, if anything, we're going to have to help guide them toward that self-control. And we are their first uh, models for that. So getting some control ourselves may be a difficult thing to do, but that's probably a good thing to do for our children.
1: And so that's great advice, so start with ourselves as parents, <laughs> but this is such a critical issue and so let's let's forget cell phones and let's even forget you know let's let's just look at a hardwired or or wi fi they've got to be on it to do their homework. You want to be an autonomy supportive parent, and you're noticing that they're flipping back and forth between a homework screen and you know some other brief distraction right first of all, what does the re- research tell you about? the impact of those brief distractions, and second of all, uh, as an autonomy-supportive parent, what do you do?
0: Well, what does the research show? It's not good, because human beings are not very good at multitasking in general, and especially when we're trying to learn... Flipping between different things is really distracting. One of the first things I tell people to do is to, you know, when you're doing homework, especially turn even the buzz off on the phone because it becomes this Pavlovian thing where we, you know, we hear the buzz and we have to look. We hear the buzz, we have to look. So if you just remove that, just understand that we are incapable of not looking. <laughs> just admit to our own flaws. The other end of that is to have a conversation. The whole, the, This whole Stepping back and giving our kids more autonomy, you have to start with the initial conversation. And the initial conversation has to be, what is my expectation? My expectation, for example, around homework is that homework will be done well, it will get turned into the teacher And then there has to be a really clear consequence when that does not happen. So all the details around how the homework gets done after you have the conversation about what works and what doesn't work really has to be up to the kid until it's time that you decide that the kid is not handling that autonomy well and you have to step in and redirect.
1: So let me just interrupt for a second because knowing for the parent to know that the homework was done well and turned into the teacher requires some degree of hovering.
0: It requires you to have a conversation with the teacher where you say, I won't be hovering, and therefore, if things are not going well, I need you to specifically get in touch with me and tell me. But I would prefer that you speak to my child first because my child is the one in charge of the homework situation in terms of making sure that their homework is getting done and it's done the right way and it's getting to you. Even when kids are younger, it's really important that you say to the teacher, I'm trying to move in this direction of being more autonomy supportive, and it's going to be really important that you understand that I'm not hovering, I'm not checking the grades, I'm not going on the computer system to check, and I won't be Signing that homework book that comes home with the kid every night, my kid will be signing that if their homework is done, but I will not be signing that. So having a really open conversation with the teacher where you say, can we please be on the same page where you hold my child to consequences if their work is not done? And if things get to a really critical place that you will get in touch with me because I will not be micromanaging. Therefore, I will not know on day one when the homework doesn't get turned in, but you will.
1: Do you know what my reaction is right now? What's that? I'm going to have a date night tonight with my wife. <laughs> you, you have just liberated me totally.
0: It's a big deal to give the kids some decision over the details. You know, if we say the expectation is the homework homework has to get in and it has to be done well and it has to get into the teacher's hands, there are going to be snags. I mean, in our house, it tends to be the, the homework getting into the teacher's hand end of it. But my kids' teachers also know that I'm not watching for it, that that's something that if it gets, if things get really out of control, they're going to have to come to me. And unless I hear otherwise, I'm going to assume that things are going well, because that's part of my kid's job is to be in charge of that and figure out how to make things work. And if the teacher says, I'm keeping the kid out, your kid after school, because this stuff hasn't gotten done, I say, great, you know, thank you for holding my kid responsible for the consequences of his actions.
1: And in the spirit of, of the commencement address for the parents of adolescents, you do have a great anecdote in your book that you had shared on your Facebook page <laughs> about seeing that homework that had been so diligently done, left on the coffee table in your house. Just tell me that story.
0: Well, I have to tell you, right at the second, I'm in a radio studio looking through the glass at the uh, the child in question, actually, right now, and he's smiling. My younger son, Finnegan, had done his homework really, really well. I'd watched him do it, actually, and, and he had done such a great job, and I was so proud of him, and it was on a subject that he didn't particularly like. And the next morning, I looked out, and he was at the bus stop, and I saw the homework sitting on the table. And I knew I had to go to the school later that morning, and so the big question is, do I take it in? And I went to Facebook and I typed, lest you think this is easy for me, this homework is sitting on the table and it's driving me crazy. And a friend of mine, uh, Lisa Heffernan, who writes for a blog called Grown and Flown, which is about older children helping get older children off and into the world, she said, you know, I, I disagree with you. I think that we do things for the people we love and we show our children compassion and we show our spouses compassion. And if your husband forgot his cell phone charger at home, you would take it to him at work. And I was like, oh, man, she's right. Maybe I'm wrong. And so I walked around the house and thought about it a little bit more. And finally, I went back to Facebook and I said, you know what, Lisa? You're right. If my husband left his cell phone charger at home, I would take it to him at work. But the difference is I'm not raising my husband. And my husband's future success does not depend on whether or not he learns how to put his charger in his briefcase and take it to work with him. However, for the past two weeks, Finn and I have been working on how do you get the homework from the coffee table into the backpack and into the teacher's hands? And when he came home from school that day, I said, "You know how things go." And he said, "I didn't take the homework." And he said, uh, "He said things went fine." I said, "Well, what about that homework?" He said, "Oh yeah, yeah, I had to stay in, but I had to talk to my teacher about, you know." how to not forget that homework next time. And we came up with an idea I'm going to write on a note card, and I think I'll stick that on the refrigerator. And that note card reminding him what to take in the morning, including his homework, is still on our refrigerator. And that happened two years ago. That exact same notebook is still sitting on our uh, refrigerator. Does he still forget his homework? Yeah, sometimes, but a lot less often than he used to. And that's because he figured out a way around it. He figured out, he says, okay, look, I'm not good at remembering my homework. I have to come up with a system. He talked to his teacher about a system. He has a system. He put it into place, and now he's responsible for that. And that was a big, big moment for both of us.
1: Well, you're setting an example, uh, both, both, both personally and, and in terms of the, the amazing synthesis. Uh, you've done in your book, which which I really, really loved reading. So um, Jessica Leahy, uh, author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Thank you for joining me on, on Wavemaker Conversations, uh, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. If you don't know how, just go to my homepage on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it slash WaveMaker and click on the purple iTunes logo. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.